0: This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security. In the age of AI, we're empowering security teams to better detect and better defend cyber threats. Stay tuned to find out how.
1: In the weeks leading up to Veterans Day, the question of patriotism has resurfaced again and again in American life, from NFL games to the White House briefing room. We've seen dueling claims over what it means to be patriotic, to dissent, to sacrifice, to serve— What does patriotism require? And who do we consider a patriot? This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Matt Thompson, executive editor of The Atlantic. The news has been filled in recent weeks with a host of questions about patriotism and sacrifice. This week, we wanted to talk about what it means to be patriotic, what it means to serve one's country, and how the two relate. In a moment, we'll be joined by my esteemed co hosts, Jeff and Alex. But first, I wanted to introduce our colleague, Krishnadev Kalamur, staff writer for The Atlantic. Hey, Krishnadev. Hi, Matt. Along with Seagal Samuel, the Atlantic's global religion editor, you recently had a conversation with one of America's most famous gold star fathers, Kaiser Khan, whose stirring speech at the 2016 Democratic National Convention brought him to national attention.
2: Have you ever been to Arlington Cemetery? Go look at the graves of brave patriots who died defending United States of America. You will see all faiths, genders, and ethnicities. You have sacrificed nothing and no one.
3: His middle son, Humayun, was a U.S. Army captain who was killed in Iraq in 2004. While uh, Khidr Khan's speech at the Democratic Convention in made him perhaps the most famous gold star parent in the country. His perspective on uh, patriotism and democracy comes in many ways by way of his upbringing in Pakistan, where he lived under martial law twice. He was born and raised there. Uh, Khan's just written a book. It's called An American Family, and he's talked about his early life in Pakistan, what prompted him to come to the U.S., uh, and of course, his love for for the U.S. Constitution and that speech at the DNC for which he's known. Excellent.
1: Well, we are, as I said, going to discuss a little bit of the themes of that interview with Jeff and Alex in a minute. But first, let's hear a little bit of your conversation with Geezer Khan.
3: It's a sentence that really struck me in the book where you wrote I'm an American patriot, not because I was born here, but because I was not. Uh, It had a huge impact on me because I feel very strongly about, about that particular idea. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this? What specifically do you, in your words, cherish about American freedoms? Well, uh, I I
2: cite uh, my taking the oath of citizenship. Uh, Coming from the background that I came from, and I'm not talking about economics of it or uh, comforts and uh, uh, other things, other material things, I'm talking about the human dignities. As I mentioned, that I have lived under two martial laws. I have seen when uh, a critical article was written about uh, the general in Pakistan, the president with all the medals and all the uniform and uh, ribbons on his uniform, and uh, 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 the newspapers uh, were locked. Uh, we heard the presses were burnt. That was to teach the press a lesson that you will not write critical of the journal. Uh, And uh, the only uh, condition was that print something favorable, praise the journal because he's the leader, and you will be allowed to print. So few days after, no newspaper, then there would be newspaper and the picture of the journal with all his medals and the praises, how good he is, how benevolent he is to the nation. Uh, the press would be allowed to print. So I came f- from that background, seared in my conscience and in my memory, then came to take, oath of citizenship, Uh, I went in the courtroom and stood with other newly being minted citizens, took the oath and read every word with full cognizance. And then that certificate of citizenship was given. And I looked at it and I walked out how changed I was. That now the dignities enshrined that I only could dream about, those are all mine now. I have the freedom of speech. I have the freedom of assembly, the protest that I could only do at the risk of my life. But that is not the case anymore. Uh, So it is with that cognizance that I say that uh, most immigrants go through that experience Uh, from having very little to uh, all of this, that is, all these dignities and rights and privileges that are enshrined in our documents become your fundamental guarantee, uh, your citizenship. Uh, Because we struggle to be Americans. Those who were born here are blessed and privileged to have this. But it is a reminder uh, that... uh, that these rights are very fragile, especially under current circumstances, our democratic values are under attack. Last century saw expansion of democracy. I have sat in with many of those who came to study the rule of law of United States. How could we eradicate corruption from our system? Uh, I don't mean to say that we have the perfect system. No, no, no. We have the best system, rule of law, Uh, our dignities, our First Amendment, our 14th Amendment. These are salient features of American life. Uh, People came to read, people came to learn about these things. Uh, So those who don't wish us well uh, decided to uh, make sure that they would malign these values, our democracy, our democratic system. And uh, and here we are. So it is absolutely necessary for us to be cognizant of, uh, of, of these, uh, of our rule of law, of our dignities enshrined in our constitution and constitutional documents. It's that story that we tell in the book.
3: I, I want to follow up something you just said. Uh, you talked about how uh, the feeling of uh, being a newly minted immigrant, how a lot of these ideas are now, and I'm paraphrasing, under threat or under attack, is... Uh, Uh, in many ways, your love affair with the U.S. began in Dubai when you met your first Americans, uh, 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 Alan and Lisa, and uh, you write very fondly of the Americans you met there, uh, mostly from these small towns in Oklahoma and Texas, and then moving to Houston where you were welcomed by uh, perfect strangers who were very generous to you. Uh, Do you think that uh, that story that your experience and the experience of many immigrants who came here in the 70s and 80s is still true for immigrants who come to the U.S.? Things are
2: much more difficult uh, for immigrants than they were when we first arrived. I fully uh, recognized and I understand uh, the delicate. Position of the vulnerability of the immigrants is being exploited for political expediency purpose, but fundamentally, uh, this is uh, because of its founding principles. What how those principles have affected the psyche of this nation. It is still one of the best place to be on planet Earth, and uh, and that. Uh, Tilt in my heart or in my soul will always be there. We are a product of our experiences. Our experience, uh, my family's experience, had been amazingly positive about this country. And same thing Captain Himayun Khan wrote when he was uh, at University of Virginia, an article to gain admission to a dormitory called Hereford College, Uh, The title of his essay was, Democracy Requires Vigilance and Sacrifice. And how true that is today that democracy is requiring, meaning our values, the values of this country are requiring vigilance and sacrifice. And uh, so here we are. So the tilt that you read in the book or in my conversation, I fully uh, understand But we are, as I said, product of our experiences. And that tilt is because of my experience in this nation.
3: A lot of your book is uh, set in Pakistan, where you were born and where you studied. You write about its transformation from a modern Muslim country created by Muhammad Ali Jinnah to one run by a series of dictators, some of whom impose stricter Islamic values. Why do you think that happened?
2: Well, uh, That's not only just Pakistan, but uh, lots of uh, newly independent countries or nations have gone through that experience. Uh, Probably, I'm not an expert on world politics, but uh, what I understand is that whenever people are recently freed before they fully recognize the blessings of the freedom and independence, which is uh, participation in the political process, before they recognize that uh, there are uh, more resourceful, shrewd uh, politicians and authoritarians sitting there to take advantage of uh, that moment and to further their own agenda instead of agenda of the people. So lots of nations have gone through that uh, after independence, uh, dictators, martial laws. And uh, so it's a process of uh, moving forward evolution, political evolution in the life of uh, people.
3: Uh, if I can just do a follow-up on that, uh, in something you've, you 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 uh, talk about in your book as well. Uh, how do you think the U.S. compares with a lot of these uh, post-colonial countries in many ways, with regards to uh, institutions versus rule of law? And in uh, in our part of the world, in the subcontinent, as I I'm from India originally, uh, uh, where the power of the individual seems to loom over. A, a nation yeah uh, it's
2: uh, india has done uh, much better than pakistan has done politically speaking uh, uh, unfortunately but uh, uh, it's uh, uh, as i mentioned it's an evolution and process of uh, realizing that uh, uh, in in democracy in uh, Participatory democracy where general public participates uh, is uh, where the mankind is headed, where uh, rule of law, where basic rights and basic dignities are guaranteed in like America in founding documents or in our system of government. We are all moving in that direction. Some nations are way ahead. Some are following throughout the world but mankind, humanity is realizing that some uh, uh, dignities and basic rights uh, must be guaranteed by any form of government. Uh, and it is, it is that uh, uh, that we aspire, and that is why, uh, and I narrate that uh, uh, my uh, uh, becoming an American, in 1972, falling in love with our founding documents, is that we all aspire uh, as as human beings to have certain liberties, certain freedoms, certain rights, certain dignities in our life.
4: I'm curious, you know, you mentioned progress, this notion of progress and the sense that America is sort of, you know, you said, why did America get there so early? Do you feel that, you know, humanity as a whole is is progressing and America has somehow sort of got it right? Is it sort of ahead of other parts of the world in that progress narrative?
2: Yes. Uh, I think uh, uh, the incidence of history is such that uh, America then, uh, we just celebrated 230 years of the Constitution coming together, and that is uh, a model uh, for the rest of the uh, world and and mankind to see how people can govern themselves. And uh, you just need to have vision and, uh, and courage with that. Uh, uh, there are certain things that I uh, share with my very patriotic American friends that talk about liberty, democracy, liberty, especially those who came to, uh, I come from Charlottesville, Virginia. Yes, same Charlottesville. Came to uh, harass us and in the name of liberty and freedom. And to them I say this, think about what liberty is. Liberty without equality, because they came in the name of white supremacy to Charlottesville under the banner of liberty. Liberty without equality is just mere a word. In liberty, all participants are equal, politically equal, socially equal, economically equal, and we are working towards that. So our liberty is not complete because we are still struggling towards those equalities. Uh, but I remind them that, uh, that rethink what liberty, what freedom, what democracy is, Nationalism type of sentiments have brought uh, uh, lots of trouble to mankind. And uh, I think it uh, it begins to separate us to an extent where we begin to exclude each other. I am not in favor of uh, any nationalism. Uh, there are uh, necessary identities where we are born, where we live, what name we have those things are, are fine but when the nationalism is used to exclude others to segregate and then to take it to another level meaning that this nation or this nationalism is better than the others when we begin to do that that is that just negates my understanding of uh, uh, of nationalism or patriotism or uh, when it begins to uh, to segregate us with that level, then it is something that I disagree with.
3: Uh, I have an un- slightly unrelated question. Uh, obviously, your son, Captain Humayun Khan, uh, died in uh, was killed in Iraq in 20, uh, 2004. Uh, and you write about how you were opposed to the Iraq war and the conversations you had with them about them, not because you're a pacifist, but because uh, you know the history of the Middle East and the conflict between uh, Sunnis and Shia and fear that the war would unleash that rivalry. Ultimately, of course, that's what happened. Uh, what do you think we should keep in mind as the U.S. becomes more involved in countries in the Middle East and beyond?
2: Yeah, it requires uh... – thorough understanding this country has resources and there are uh, knowledgeable people among us that can advise us better that uh, certain parts of the world require restraint. Certain parts of the world and certain controversies require a restrained role and deterrence serves much better than uh, being
3: flamboyant. You obviously came to prominence after the DNC, uh, Democratic Presidential Convention speech, Uh, and many people probably uh, assume that you are a Democrat. But in the book, you write very fondly about President Reagan and his idea of the shining city on the hill. Do you see yourself as belonging to any one party? No, no, I, I... I have voted both
2: ways Republican and and Democrats and I continue to admire Repub- uh, 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 President Reagan's uh, that farewell speech where he calls America as a uh, uh, shining city on but I what uh, touches my heart when he said that city has walls that wall has doors open to those who come with heart and courage. He's talking about us immigrants coming here. The spirit of immigration is so powerful. People say that uh, that, uh, uh, this is country of immigrants. Not at all, this is country of spirit of immigrants spirit of immigration, which is to make your life better and make life of your generation better, your community better. So it is that that uh, I belong to. I belong to uh, anyone that uh, uh, is for the good of this country. So I have voted Republican. I have voted Democrat.
4: You mentioned this sentiment that democracy requires constant vigilance. Uh, What other forms of vigilance would you hope – uh your fellow americans would sort of adopt over the next few years
2: on 7th of november take the time go stand in line regardless of weather regardless of how cold it is there is sacredness in that moment when uh when uh, uh individual citizen stands up and say i am going to go and vote today regardless of for whom you vote that choice is always there: Republican, Democrats, Independent, participate because with participation, you are uh, strengthening the democracy and the democratic values. Without participation, democracy becomes vulnerable. Realize that you're participating to strengthen your rule of law, basic values, basic fundamental values that the rest of the mankind wishes to have. You have it. It is your obligation to defend these values. So there is a sacredness, in my opinion, uh, in participation in our democratic system.
3: Uh, Thank you, Mr. Khan. appreciate you being here.
4: Yeah, it was a pleasure meeting you and hearing your views.
3: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: That was a fascinating conversation. What did you draw from it? What are some of your takeaways, Krishnadev?
3: Uh, Well, one of the overarching themes in Khan's book, uh, uh, and even in the conversation, uh, was this idea that he appreciated the U.S. because he came here as an immigrant. Uh, And it's it's a theme that runs through the book. And I actually... uh, Only when I finished reading it did I realize that this particular sentence that really stuck with me was on the inside cover blurb. And and the sentence says, I'm an American patriot, not because I was born here, but because I was not. It's something uh, a lot of people who, including me, who came to the U.S. from elsewhere, appreciate because you're coming to a place where things that Americans take for granted – They simply don't exist in the places we come from, for instance, the right to free speech or to bear arms or to protest, but even simpler things like the order that we have in the U.S., uh, for instance, a passage that Khan writes about his first visit to the DMV in Houston. This, of course, is a uh, massive rite of passage, and it's uh, in the the U.S., and everyone complains about it, uh, the bureaucracy and how awful it is. But for Khan, it was a it's a it's a fantastic experience because it shows him that rules apply equally to everybody. And when, you, and when you come from that part of the world where there are very distinct rules for folks who are uh, elite and powerful, and, and for the rest of us, it's a very eye opening experience. Uh, similarly, he talks about street addresses, which obviously we all take for granted. You know, we uh, we at the Watergate are at uh, six hundred New Hampshire Avenue. It can only mean one thing in the U.S. Whereas when you come from a place where Addresses are much more informal, uh, you know, under a tree, make a left at the shop. This is how informally addresses are given, directions are given in places. And Khan talks about that in his book, and it might sound funny, but when you come from a place without order, things like a street address or a DMV experience is nothing short of a miracle.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And we wanted to start the conversation with Khan because he's got a very particular understanding and experience around patriotism, patriotism to America, what patriotism demands or requires of a citizen and the sacrifice that might be inherent in patriotism. Next, we're gonna hear from a few veterans of the American Armed Services, and we're going to bring our colleagues, Jeffrey Goldberg and Alex Wagner, into the conversation. Stay tuned.
0: We're entering a new era of security. Cyber threats are escalating rapidly. And while tech alone can't eliminate every threat, it can empower security teams to quickly respond to incidents at scale. Microsoft is transforming the industry by innovating to arm teams with the resources necessary to outpace adversaries and operate at machine speed. Microsoft Copilot for Security, powered by generative AI, works alongside defenders. Stay tuned to learn more about Copilot's capabilities after the episode.
1: And we're back, and now we are joined by my esteemed co-hosts, Alex Wagner. Hello, Alex. Oh, hello, Matt. And Jeffrey Goldberg. Hello, Jeff. Hello. <laughs> why? Why are you guys
5: always so fake happy? We're
4: thrilled to be together, no, and Jeff I, I, and I are in the same room, which we are. Is almost we are
5: in never happens. Jeff, yeah, this is great. Why are you yes.
1: always
4: so fake sad?
3: I'm,
5: I'm not, you know, actually, I'm an up with people kind of person. Um, I am, but I just, it's a faux sophistication. I have to sort of seem like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. And of mm, course, it's Krishnadev. It's part of
4: the job requirement. It's part of the job.
1: Krishnadev is still with us over here. Hello.
3: Hello.
5: Oh, hi, Krishnadev. Hi. Hi. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. So, You're welcome. Uh, we just heard uh, Krishnadev's interview along with our colleague Sagal Samuel with Kizar Khan. And I reached out before this conversation to a few uh, veterans, um, uh, folks who had themselves served in various American engagements overseas. And I want to play you a couple of the things that they said um, to kick us off for this part of the conversation. I asked them about their feelings about nationalism, patriotism in the military. Here's one clip from Army veteran Ella Misha.
6: As a U.S. Army veteran, patriotism for me was very simple. It was to serve and protect and defend the United States
4: of America as a soldier. And for me, my time in the military is always something that I'm going to be very proud of because what I witnessed in the military was um, people of different races and backgrounds and ethnicities working together for a single unified mission. This is something that I've yet to witness, this level of co-working and cooperation in the civilian sector.
1: And I'll play you one more. Here's John, who served for more than two decades in the Marine Corps.
6: A veteran, I spent over 20 years in the Marine Corps with time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, recently, I've, a lot of people have been talking about why I did that and, and you know, whether I was over there to protect people's rights to stand for the National Anthem or not stand for the National Anthem and uh, or Neil, And I think uh I can honestly say that over the 20 years plus, I never woke up in the morning and thought, "Hey, I'm going to go out and protect the uh, rights of my fellow American citizens today." You know, the right of the free press, or the right to assemble, to uh, keep firearms, or the the right of speech. And the reason I think is because I don't think that those rights have been threatened from without for a considerable uh, amount of time, you know, barring a, a man in the high castle sort of scenario. You know, World War Two you know, 75 years ago, maybe. Um, I'm from North Carolina, and I uh, see bumper stickers every day that say, you know, if you can read this, thank a teacher, which I completely agree with. Uh, thank the world teachers, we should pay them more. But the second part says, if you can read it in English, thank a veteran. You know, don't, uh, don't don't need to thank me for that. I don't think I had a whole lot uh, to do with with that.
5: I like that point. It's an interesting point. We always do that. We're protecting our rights at home. But I like that. He doesn't feel like they're under assault. I think that's fascinating. I I, I disagree with his analysis, but it it's a subtle analysis. the The, the point I would make is, and you know, where uh, Alex and I are sitting in Manhattan, um, the week of uh, a terror attack, uh, apparently a lone wolf, but somebody who thinks he's in ISIS. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the simple truth of the matter is if our society, if we have more and more terrorism in this country that emanates from the Middle East in some form or fashion, that's when we start to trim our own rights and we start having a debate in this country about the limits of free speech and the limits of free assembly and all this sort of thing. So there is this argument to be made that by fighting this overseas, you're not fighting it at home. It doesn't work so cleanly, obviously, all the time. But if you can deal with terrorism at its, at its physical sources then you don't have to deal with it here and you know the key difference between terrorism deaths and bathtub deaths is that bathtub deaths you know people always say well more people die in bathtubs each year than they die than than die at the hands of terrorists that might be true but bathtubs aren't conspiring to uh to to kill larger numbers of people than they than they kill terror the threat of terrorism in America is such that that Americans react to terrorism by Wondering whether they have too much freedom and whether and whether our constitutional protections are worth shedding for the sake of security. And so there is this argument to be made that fighting over there in Iraq and Afghanistan dealing with terrorism where it emanates from keeps you from having to deal with it here. Anyway,
4: just yeah, a bathtubs don't prompt debate about recalibrating constitutional rights. right
5: bathtub accidents are tragic, but they're steady. Yeah, bathtub deaths don't pose a threat to civil liberties nor do traffic accidents. Or GWIs. They're all bad, but but terrorism, the, the threat to terrorism is not merely to, to American bodies. It's to American openness and American constitutional freedom.
4: Right, because it shakes the American public in a right. much deeper emotional way. And it sort of causes us to ask sort of fundamental Most questions. Most people about want security first. Conflict. Security
5: is a necessary precondition to having discussions about liberties and rights.
1: It's interesting to hear you make that point, Jeff, uh, particularly right. After we heard Kesar Khan talk about equality as a precondition for liberty, uh, of course, security and liberty is the classic trade-off, and I'm going to refrain from butchering Ben Franklin here. But the way he framed that point, equality as being a foundation for liberty, struck me as deeply perceptive. And Krishnadev, we wanted to hear from Kesar Khan in part because he knows incredibly well what it is possible to lose: one's liberty, one's son. From what you heard in that interview with him, what was it that you think he finds it most important to protect? What what was his son, Captain Humayun Khan? What did his son die protecting?
3: You know, Keitar Khan is an interesting guy because one of the things he said was that he – the idea that he appreciated the U.S. because he is an immigrant. He said in his book, and I make this point too, that he's an American patriot not because he was uh, born here but because he wasn't. And I think that's something – uh, you get from appreciating the United States when you come from places where things that Americans take for granted simply don't exist, for instance, the right to free speech or to bear arms or even to protest, but even simpler things, which uh, Keith Khan wrote, writes about in his book, like the order we have in the US, uh, for, for instance, and he talks about this is, uh, I know that folks complain about going to the DMV, but he writes about his first experiences at a DMV in Houston and how everyone, despite their national, religious, or ethnic backgrounds, had to follow the same rules at DMV. is a pretty powerful idea for someone who comes from a place where there are explicitly different set of rules for the powerful and everyone else. Or if you take something more mundane, like a street address. Khan writes about how when you give directions to your home uh, in Pakistan... It, it, might, it may go something like, uh, take a right at the big tree and then look for the house with the balcony, and that's not my house. My house is down the road. It sounds uh, it sounds absurd, but when you come from a place without order, a street address is nothing short of a miracle. And this may seem kind of a bizarre to equate it with U.S. operations overseas, but these are things that people here take for granted, and they're actually quite important things that most other places just simply lack.
4: I I can absolutely sympathize, Krishnadev, with Keeser Khan's assessment that immigrants, in some ways, display uh, a strain of American patriotism that n- natural-born citizens sometimes do not, or an appreciation for this country. My mom was born in Burma, and I think, and and lived actually in Europe for twenty years recently, and be is the most fervent. "Quote unquote patriot" you'll ever see more so than I think her 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 daughter. If you're just talking about the rhetoric around America, and I and I think it's really born of the sense that this country has been a place of incredible opportunity for her, but a really unswerving belief in the inherent goodness of America and the concept. At the same time. You know she's been hugely critical and very dismayed of the current administration, so it prompts that question, Matt. What is the difference between nationalism and patriotism, right? Because she would consider herself a patriot, but I think some of the the stuff she said about the president, people would say you're not a patriot at all.
1: Yeah,
5: well, she's obviously not a blood and soil. I mean, it, the, nationalist, it, it, nationalist, right? Well, that's the whole. I like, that's why the blood and soil people are so. Uh, I mean, profoundly wrong. It's like we're we're a creedal. Nation, we're not a blood or soil nation. You, you, you. Uh, either you, you, you. When you buy the idea, the American idea, the American creed, that's what makes you an American. That's the beautiful thing, and that's what a lot of people are trying to
1: reverse. There's this other dimension in the conversation with Khan, and from what we heard from the the veterans, which is that right now conflict in the american sphere can military conflict specifically can feel abstract one of the most significant attacks on american soil in recent years is in fact a cyber attack on the american election and given that Given the abstraction of conflict, I mean, you know, we heard um, from teachers. We did this call out to veterans. And one of the things that we heard, for example, was from teachers who made the point that uh, students nowadays do not see, unlike the Vietnam War, say, students aren't seeing the images of, of conflict, the toll of conflict on their televisions every night in their living rooms. And. Um, G- Jim Fallows made this point in a piece for our magazine just a few years ago called the tragedy of the American military, that the, uh, the way we think of American of military conflict, um, is as this distant idea abstracted from, uh, from the, the actual costs that it imposes, right? Well, this is the, this is the, the fundamental problem
5: today is that, uh, we got what we wanted, which was an all-volunteer force, right? Yeah. Uh, nobody's compelled to go to the military, which means that it becomes a uh, it becomes a caste in a way. It becomes a subsection of of a population, and. Uh, that's the reason we don't see war as much as we should because mo- 99%, I mean John Kelly, the chief of staff, the White House chief of staff has some illegitimate complaints in the last uh, in the last round uh of Trump drama, but he had some legitimate observations to be made. Talk that a little 1% bit more of about the country, that. well 1% of the country is doing the fighting for the other 99%. Um and that allows Presidents, by the way, the volunteer force is is a good thing in many ways, but it's a bad thing in others. It allows presidents to have uh, to go to war without really the consent of the of 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 the people because the people are not at risk
4: I, I we've been talking about this idea about institutions that are meant to serve the American public writ large but increasingly serve only a section of it. We talked about it in the context of public schools, and I think jeff. Jeff made news in my own personal world when he said, "You know, private school is morally questionable if you're talking about this this compact that we've established." Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and I feel like the military I didn't realize I made news in your yeah in my world in yeah. your news feed mine too in I'm my world, with you Alex in my mind and I feel like it's the same question here with the military, which is, you know, it's supposed to be all for one, one for all, but increasingly you have casts of children who go to public schools because they. You know, don't have the resources to go elsewhere and you have the haves and the have-nots, the division there, and the same is true in large part in the military, right? And it's
5: generational. I mean, look at John Kelly. His sons, one of whom was tragically killed, uh, his sons are the ones who take up the burden uh, and and so it gets passed down and they become more and more isolated from the rest of us. Yeah, and
4: I think it's also Kelly is making a sort of moral and ethical decision and his sons were too i'm going to serve my country and i think that uh, though though they didn't necessarily need to same is true for people of means who decide i'm going to send my child here because i think it's morally ethically and perhaps in some degree educationally the better option right. but it's a host of externalities that right. that drive people to reengage in public institutions which is right. not sort of the way it's supposed to be
1: do you think that it, that John Kelly and other military leaders have too much power at this moment in the Trump administration. This has been a point that David Frum has made here on Radio Atlantic previously. Far and away the most important bureaucracy in the United States government is the military. And one of the questions I I worry about a lot is to what extent is the president of the United States now in the chain of command? How seriously do the military take his orders? Um, how autonomously are the military acting independent of his orders? And although I personally, and I suspect many people would be vastly cheered if James Mattis were president of the United States right now rather than Donald Trump, he's not.
4: I think that there are a lot of people who would sort of look at, I mean, especially this week when we have the indictments unsealed and see the, uh, shall we say, checkered resumes or non-existent resumes that uh, this administration was pulling from in terms of its hiring, Paul Manafort, George Papadopoulos. Um, that, I love it when you say Papadopoulos,
5: by the way. Yeah, yeah. I just
4: call him Papa. Papa
5: Do- <laughs> Papa-Dop. 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 Papa-Dop.
4: Papa-Dop. Um, th- th- there's a f- certain number of Americans that are happy to have him pull military personnel for the administration because they are qualified to hold public office, uh, in, at least insofar as they've been educated and pursued a sort of rigorous career path, right. if you will.
5: Well, A, the military is still the one institution that seems to pull well with the average American, in part because these are uh, go-getting, barrel-chested freedom fighter-looking people in handsome uniforms who seem to be able to achieve things that that other institutions do Well, don't and achieve. have chosen
4: to... Sa- I mean, let's be... Fair. They and, have also and, and, chosen to serve their country and, yeah. in a way that most Americans yeah, and do most not. Them, and right.
5: Whatnot. Right. So there's a, there's there's simultaneously great admiration for the choice, and very few people are making that choice. I mean, the interesting permutation on the in the moment is that you have a situation in the American government in which we have a group of generals who are protecting the United States from its president. That sounds not very American mm. in a kind of way. I mean, I'm putting it in the most you know corrosively cynical way possible but that's the way a lot of people feel about the current situation or in ordinary times you wouldn't want jim mattis recently retired as from from the marines as a general to be the civilian in charge of the pentagon because he's actually not really a civilian in mentality He spent most of his adult life in uniform but on the other hand he seems like a sane rational smart intelligent responsible responsible person, person and so um we are leaning in a completely different context. We're overleaning on the military once again because we understand that these are among the best people and obviously the people who are deciding to make sacrifices in a time in American history when Americans are not being asked to make sacrifices. But uh, it's not it's, – things are not in balance that just everything feels out of balance.
1: I I mean, I do also wonder, though, and this was something that that kind of came across in some of what we heard from veterans as well, um, that is that very public support for the military? uh, Does that kind of flow directly from the military being something of an abstraction, of not being familiar with it? There were several veterans that said, you know, the military is like, the more you look at it, and Jim Fowler's made this point for us too, the, the closer you are to it, the more you look at it, the more you realize it, you understand it as an institution, Institution with its own institutional, a large, complex bureaucratic institution with the same challenges, complexities, and problems that any such institution has and giving it near universal deference and neglect.
5: Yeah, there is too much deference. That's an overreaction to the Vietnam period when there was contempt and often contempt expressed directly at enlisted soldiers not even at the generals and people american society recoiled from that in a way and now we've gone probably a little bit too far well
4: and we have a pro- professional class of soldiers it's sort of the out of sight out of mind it's i think our version of mea culpa is to afford the military a very long runway in you terms mean we of feel bad we about feel the fact bad that they're doing this yeah, dirty they're work doing for us. they're literally sacrifice they're putting their lives on the line so who are we
1: hmm. krishnadev you spend most of your time writing about the world or <laughs> out the world outside of america
5: mm-hmm.
1: um and what do you think is most distinct um about uh america's relationship with its military uh, particularly at this moment from from i mean anyone I, else?
3: I, I i think in many ways um because most of the Western world has uh, has a professional military, I would actually argue that the relationship is very similar to how other countries view their military. In that, I think it is very respectful and very deferential. Uh, and as Alex pointed out, you know, maybe there is some guilt in it, in that we don't serve, but but there is this large group of people who actually do serve and put their lives at risk. Uh, and and with that comes a deference, uh, quite rightly, and it's seen as an honest. Uh, organization in uh, in a country where much of the establishment is now polling quite poorly, whether it's Congress or the media or uh, or the courts, but uh, the the army, the military does uh, quite well. This is true, I think, in most other places. Uh, ones which are actively involved in conflicts overseas, and even ones that are not, uh, It's just that the you know you have a professional class of soldiers, uh, and I think people are quite respectful toward them
1: and i want to ask one last question to you jeff um, you've done some service um some national mm. service <laughs> um, not uh not in the u.s but in no Israel. no i was in the israeli army 30 years ago
5: uh, and the well the experience there is so different and and this is why i am theoretically at least in favor of a universal draft or universal conscription or at least universal service uh in america i mean i don't i don't want to force a a male or a female who doesn't want to carry a gun for his or her country to carry a gun but i think that you come out of high school i think you should serve your country for a year or two whether whatever it is fighting forest fires digging ditches teaching in schools volunteering in hospitals uh, the experience in Israel is that uh, and this is cha- what I understand it's changed over three decades as the army has become more professionalized and a little bit more remote but still most people get drafted into the army and they mix with people they just would never have mixed with otherwise so you have kids from really upper crusty high schools mixing with people from very poor development towns uh, in the Israeli context. It's, you, you know, uh, uh, Jews of uh, Eastern European extraction mixing with Moroccan and Egyptian and Iranian and Iraqi Jews. And, you know, those populations don't uh, sometimes mix too easily. And so it has a unifying uh, effect on a national culture. And I think that's one of, I mean, you know, we've been thinking at the Atlantic for a long time, obviously about e pluribus unum. You know, what is, what is the thing that binds us about, as opposed to the, you know, there's such an emphasis on the many now and not the one in in, in American culture. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily argue that this is the reason to do national service, to sort of force people together. National service should be used to make the country a f- actually practically better place but a side benefit is that um you will have to be with people unlike you and once you get to meet somebody in 3d not just across facebook or social media um it becomes a little bit more difficult to hate them in the uh, when you when they're when they're real and in front of you
4: that's why it's so great to record this podcast with you in the same room jeff
5: yeah because we're just, we can't hate each other anymore. Yeah, we can't hate yeah, each other yeah, anymore. because we've always, yeah, it's always been rough for both of us. But
4: that is, that is, that is exactly the spirit of that one veteran that we heard from earlier. She talked about co-working and cooperation in the military. And that experience it, it changes your worldview. Yeah,
1: absolutely. With that, let us turn to our closing segment. Keepers. Jeff, Alex, Krishnadev, what have you heard, read, watched, experienced, listened to? You name it. Recently, that you do not want to forget, Christiane. Why don't we start with you?
3: Uh, I read this piece in the New York Sunday New York Times Sunday Review a couple of weeks ago by a writer called Assad Hussein. I believe he's Somali who lives in Kenya, and it it uh, detailed a road trip he took in Somalia in um, in territory that's controlled by Al shabaab It was a really fantastic piece, and it was very powerfully written. But it was also it also speaks. I think a great deal to how difficult a task it is to, even if militaries are successful in defeating terrorist organizations, how difficult it is to implement rule of law, because Al-Shabaab seems to have done that in the land it controls, according to this article. It was a very good piece.
4: Mm.
1: So I'm going to go next. John Green,
3: uh,
1: noted author, uh, YouTube personality, mentioned person he has been on a book tour for his book um, turtles all the way down very well reviewed book which uh, has been praised in part for making visceral vivid and understandable the experience of having obsessive compulsive disorder um, of having ocd which uh, john himself does and the other day so he's on this book tour and he took a moment he does this video pairing with his brother hank um who where they just send each other videos on youtube they say good morning hank good morning john and they kind of exchange video letters to one another and we all get to watch and his thank you to his brother at the end of this episode taped from his book tour um was just delightful i want to play it really briefly
0: And while I do really love to tour and talk with people about the book, it's also a bit overwhelming. So Hank, I hope you'll forgive this moment of sincerity, but watching you perform at your old high school last night, I kept thinking about how incredibly kind you've been to me the last few weeks. Like, you're taking a month away from your family and your many jobs to be on tour with me. You turned your frickin' Twitter profile into actual turtles all the way down. And you've just been there for me so consistently, in a way that frankly goes back to when you were a student at that high school. I am really lucky and really grateful. Thank you.
1: It was a reminder to me of the simple importance of gratitude. Uh, He talks about it being overwhelming and being you know, kind of flooded with all these folks. Um, and on the one hand, you know, he's very grateful for the amount of, of attention and respect that his book has drawn. And the fact that people are willing to come see him and, and sit through a book reading and ask him to sign his book and be fans and all that. But he pauses just to thank his brother for being a great person. Um, and, and, Uh, It made me think about all the people in my life who I should, (laughs) I should not forget to thank all the people who make every single day a pleasure. It's such an elemental, basic thing, Um, but it's easy, particularly in a chaotic and tumultuous moment to forget. Thanks. Alex, how about you?
4: Well, as long as we're talking about America, patriotism and nationalism, I'm going to talk about America's greatest sport, which is baseball. Right. This is the week of the fall classic. Football's going
5: down, right?
4: Listen, I'm not going to go out there and get the hate mail, but my sport is baseball. It it is foundational to the marriage that I'm in, (laughs) and (laughs) I will say that this week, your husband
5: was one of the. 1,000 best baseball players in Chicago when he was in high school, wasn't he? In it? his neighborhood. In his <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
4: I, I won't impugn Sam's no, he was great a good, reputation. He was a, he he was was a, a good, real, he was a, he's a, a contender. He's a contender. He's a ball player. But I'm reminded in these moments of division when we talk about how far apart we are, what an incredibly wonderful, beautiful, Don DeLillo-esque thing happens to this country when the fall classic is on the air. And the hmm. Dodgers you. and the Astros were incredibly well-matched. Statistically, the two best-matched teams ever to play in the World Series. And it, those seven games could not have come at a better week. Thank you.
1: Amen to that. Um, I happened to be at a bar after a wedding um, with the most delightful um, 80-year-old veteran of theater (laughs) um, who uh, was reminiscing, Angela, who spent much time reminiscing um, about being, for example, an understudy to Florence Henderson. We happened to be at this bar um, when the World Series was playing after the wedding was over, and I was so pleasantly delighted to find Angela just geeking out to the world series um uh dodgers versus astros was on and she was like um <laughs> if the dodgers win i'm burning the whole thing down it's so great
4: <laughs> no spoiler alerts here no spoiler alerts. no
1: spoiler alerts jeff what do you want to keep
5: uh ken burns's and lynn novick's documentary uh on on the vietnam war I just want to bring this back to our conversation there's a moment in there in, in which uh, some film of Jane Fonda and her visit to North Vietnam where she's actually with the North Vietnamese army and she's calling for the trial and possible execution of American POWs. I – we all know about Jane Fonda and her little adventure in North Vietnam – uh, but I I never saw such uh, I never saw that film, and I I asked Ken Burns about it. I said I, I don't remember ever seeing that, and he said that's because we've just unearthed this particular bit of film, and it really it's really uh, striking how how vitriolic she is toward uh, American POWs, and it reminds me that the country is actually in a better place now than we were in Vietnam. This is a constant preach. This is a, thank you very much. Mm. Uh, you know, when you yell, pre- then it sets me off on another thing. We are in a much different place now than we were in Vietnam and a better place where at least through all of our divisions, we don't take out our Anger at American soldiers in the way that anger was taken out of American soldiers during the Vietnam period, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of talk now about, are is the country as divided as it was during Vietnam? Is the country divided as it was before the Civil War? I would say, in one notable aspect, and based on watching this Ken Burns documentary, that we are in a much better place than we were uh, during the height of the Vietnam War. We have a we have a broad based, still bipartisan respect for the people who serve. Uh, and the people who choose to possibly sacrifice their lives in the defense of their country. And that didn't exist in the same way during the Vietnam period.
4: You know what did exist from the Civil War to the Vietnam War to today. I know what you're going to say. What, Alex? 160 years.
5: Happy birthday, Atlantic! Atlantic. Yes, happy birthday, Atlantic! Go, Atlantic! Birthday, the big big 160.
4: Looking better than ever. Right, doesn't
5: look a day over 154. It is so true. It is so true. It's our birthday. Long may she wave. Here's to the next 160.
1: Yeah, I wish we had a.
5: I wish we had a John Baptiste song. Uh, To play us out. A very patriotic tune
1: that we could use to celebrate that. I may be able to grant that wish, Jeff. I think we can do it. (laughs) As always, it has been a pleasure. Krishnadev, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Jeff and Alex, catch you again soon.
4: Catch you soon.
1: That'll do it for this week's Radio Atlantic. Thanks again to Kizar Khan, to our colleague Krishnadev Kalamur and Segal Samuel, and to my esteemed co-hosts Jeff and Alex. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend with production support from Kim Lau. Thanks to Paul Ruist and Argo Studios for engineering support. And as always, to the one and only John Batiste, creator of our theme. We've got a special treat this week after these credits conclude. The trailer to our newest podcast, The Atlantic Interview, which debuts November 8th. As always, please look for us at Facebook.com slash Radio Atlantic and TheAtlantic.com slash radio. And if you like what you're hearing, please don't forget to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. You'll find detailed show notes linked from the episode description. And now, stay tuned for a special preview of our newest show.
4: Hi, I'm Adrian Green, Managing Editor of The Atlantic. We were started in 1857, when some of the greatest minds in American arts and letters convened to form a magazine centered around the American idea. The magazine has given voice to some of the nation's most significant ideas and debates. And now, 160 years after its founding, we bring you The Atlantic Interview, a podcast featuring our editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg.
5: Who is sitting right here in the studio with you. I just want to note that for the record.
4: And since you're here, tell us what this is all about.
5: The podcast is called The Atlantic Interview. So this is The Atlantic interviewing people.
4: Jeff, The Atlantic is a magazine. How is it going to interview people?
5: Well, I'm going to interview them on behalf of The Atlantic. I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory. Our goal is to spend a lot of time with one person, one person who is interesting or famous or important or interesting, famous, and important. Really the most interesting people I could find out there. Uh, we have Chimamanda Adichie, the great Nigerian-American novelist.
1: I used to think Americans wouldn't bow to power in the way they have done.
5: We got Jake Tapper, who's a famous Twitter personality who also hosts most of the day on CNN. I just revealed something that I've never revealed to anybody what? before. What? That I find everybody in the world annoyed. I think that comes through. I mean, at least with, with me. Got the mayor of Los Angeles talking about tacos, and I'm really not even kidding.
0: Yucas Tacos, they have the best cochinita pivil, which is this marinated pork uh, dish from like the Yucatan. Uh, it's in Los Feliz. You kind of stand in a parking lot across from a, a grocery store. Best taco town.
5: Did you uh, audience test that answer?
0: Yeah, we, we, we shopped that for about uh, 17 weeks.
5: We're going to try to leave it loose and, and just sort of see if we can have uh, just a teeny bit of fun.
4: Let's hope so. The Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Whoa, that was cold. That was, that was very cold. AJ.
4: The Atlantic <laughs> interview. Jeffrey Goldberg, no, no, no. no scratch. The first interview with Chimamanda Adichie and a very special guest. Do you
5: want to know who the special guest is?
4: Yeah.
5: Uh, I can't really tell you, but it rhymes with Shmanahisi Schmotes.
4: <laughs> well, Shmanahisi Schmotes hits <laughs> your favorite podcast app on November 8th.
0: This episode of Radio Atlantic is brought to you by Microsoft Copilot for Security, completely integrated into your organization's security infrastructure. This AI companion is informed by 78 trillion signals daily to help you catch the threats others miss and reinforce your team's security posture efficiently. It synthesizes data from numerous sources and can analyze 500 lines of code in under a minute to put critical guidance at defenders' fingertips. It helps teams detect threats and take action in minutes instead of hours or days, which can reduce attack investigation time by up to 40%. Copilot also serves as a key second pair of eyes, upscaling junior analysts with advanced capabilities, which frees up senior staff to focus on strategic priorities, all while safeguarding your data privacy. Learn more at microsoft.com slash copilot for security.